Jack Campbell, I have to say. I think I'm, I, I don't think I'm doing amazing. I don't think I'm living the life of a professional athlete, but he has had a couple bad starts in a row here, and that has led a lot of people to being down on the Leafs. And understandably, when you blow 3-1 leads, people are going to be upset, and I totally understand that. And if you look at the chart of Jack Campbell's running save percentage throughout the season, it's fallen off of a cliff the last week or two. It's really come down. So... Am I feeling as down on the Leafs as Jack Campbell's save percentage? No, because I, I didn't think his 940 was going to last. I didn't think that's who he truly was as a goalie. And I also don't think this is who he truly is as a goalie, the 880 save percentage we've seen in the last couple games. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I know you, we were talking before the show. You were asking me, well, okay, what is he really? And with league average goaltending, what are the Toronto Maple Leafs? So I'll give that question to you. I'll, I'll give you the floor. What are the Toronto Maple Leafs? If Jack Campbell isn't amazing, if Jack Campbell is merely average. I mean, if I fully knew the answer, I would be putting a lot of money one way or the other come playoff time on on the Leafs or their opponent. But I I think that's one of the biggest questions that the management team is going to have to kind of sort through and reconcile prior to the deadline, right? Like, you know, they started off the season slowly and then they went on a massive, massive heater and Jack Campbell was giving them Vesna caliber goaltending. Like he was incredible. I don't think anyone would make any bones about that. He's hit a bit of a rough patch. I don't think he's the only problem on the team at the moment. But without him providing them elite goaltending, you start to see some holes in their game, which he was probably masking before. And now you kind of. The thing is, goaltending kind of cures everything else, right? A little bit. You're not, you know, you're not, you're not scoring as much as you should. But if you're not, but if your goaltender's standing on his head, it's not that big of a deal. Just look at the New York Rangers' record right now. That team at five on five, they get outshot, they get outchanced on a consistent basis. But Igor Shesterkin leads the league in goals saved above expected, and they're in a playoff spot because of it. He was sick in the second half of that game. He was unreal. He, he kept them in, and then he closed the door once they took the lead. He should win the Vesna, in my opinion, and I think he should get serious heart consideration for how heavily he's dragging that team to success because the other top goalies in the league this year, Anderson, Bobrovsky, Vasilevsky, I think those teams are fine with league average goaltending. I think they're still very strong teams. Without Igor Shesterkin stealing games for the Rangers, they shouldn't be in the playoffs right now. And here's the tough thing for the Leafs, right? Um, I think Campbell's a good goalie. I don't know if he's if he's going to maintain the the Vesna caliber play, I would probably argue no. And then if he doesn't, how do they suddenly compare against the general run of the league? They still, they're fine. No, 
it's stupid to even talk about it in comparison to just random regular season games. You're not worried about them on a Tuesday but night against the Ottawa Senators? I couldn't give a shit, right? The only, there's three teams I'm thinking of at this point, arguably four in case there's some sort of wild card crossover situation that happens. But Florida, Tampa, Boston, potentially Carolina in some sort of crossover manifest destiny, lose to Freddie in round one. So it is said, so it is written. We're all Leaf fans. We know what life is like. Anderson's also another Vesna candidate, by the way, right now. I know, which is wild. <laughs> so if if the Leafs don't have that level of goaltending, suddenly how do they stack up? Now, I think their forwards are pretty legit. I think there's depth there. I think Kasha gives them something on line three that they really haven't had in past years. I think Bunting has fit in well on the top line. And as much as I think Zach Hyman is an overall better player than him, I hope you don't fight me on that. Um, I mean, who has more points this year? That's all I want to know. And even <laughs> is, are you, are you the strength. point guy? Are you the point guy now? Is that a real thing? Is that your it, angle? Ever since I read the article, that, that stats-heavy article, just breaking down how predictive points are as a measure, I think I'm starting to come around on how valuable points are to player evaluation. But Hyman was playing at like a 30-goal pace for back-to-back seasons, so I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't it's know more, if it's more me saying Michael Bunting's up. really good as opposed Bunting, to saying Zach Hyman sucks. Bunting is really good. And, and honestly, the only, the only reason I brought up the two in comparison is Hyman did nothing in the playoffs the past few years. I think he had three points in his last 18 playoff games or something wildly terrible. And his style of play is one that you would think would matter more in the playoffs when things are a bit tighter. You'd think a guy like Zach Hyman winning puck battles would do more to help you. And I guess the production just wasn't there. What can you say? And I mean, knock on wood, but Bunting can't possibly be that bad in the playoffs. Like that, I don't want to say bad, sorry. He shouldn't, he couldn't possibly be that unproductive in the playoffs alongside Matthews and Marner. He should have plenty of room considering how much teams are going to game plan to take away Matthews' space. I'd imagine Mitch Marner's on his wing come that time, and I don't know if teams back off of Marner and dare him to shoot from distance. And spacing-wise, that should open up lots of room for bunting in tight, so I'm curious to see how it goes. I know I do know that penalty drawing as a series goes on in games 6 and 7, penalty rates are significantly lower than in games 1 through 5. And that makes sense common sense-wise when you think about it. A lot of times referees don't want to quote-unquote determine the game, and in turn they make decisions by not calling legitimate penalties that end up determining the game, but that's NHL officiating for you. I don't want to talk too much about so, it because it's just going to drive me insane. But we are talking about Michael Bunting. One of his biggest strengths is penalty drawing. So all that to say, though, for um, getting back to the main point there is I think their forwards are improved. I think, like I said, Kasha adds another element. I think Bunting has been a serviceable replacement. Ilya McKayev found his shooting percentage. Between the cushions. I, he was missing it last year, and he just found it all in one week. It's awesome. I'm, I'm almost worried that he's just getting them out of the way with now, you know, and then, then he turns back into a pumpkin come playoff time. Now, that's not how luck's supposed to work. Just because you have good luck doesn't mean you're due bad luck. You're supposed to have normal luck moving forward. Yeah, but it's the Toronto Maple Leafs. The answer is always, it's the Toronto Maple Leafs. We're going to look I saw, back I saw and a be... comment. You, you, they can't possibly shoot 2% again in the playoffs. And they, I and it's like, well, it's the you. Leafs, don't, so I don't know. <laughs> do not put that out into the universe. I'll slap you, all right? There's just, no, I don't want to hear it. I think that's one of the biggest 
I, I think people try to look at it almost too logical. And, and we said this last week, too. It's the, wor- the worst thing is every loss is a referendum on the team and their playoff hopes. And it's nuts. I mean, they're a really good team. The worry shouldn't be, you know, that this is a troubling sign per se just yet. I think the, the bigger worry is they're in an elite division with no margin for error. I think they're in the best division. Oh, no, it's there's no question. When you look at the record of the top four teams in every division, the Atlantic is so far ahead of the other three divisions. It's four of the what? Four of the seven or eight best teams in hockey are in the yeah. Atlantic? It's crazy. So uh, my my sense of worry comes from the fact that it's like, okay, well, if Campbell regresses to a league average goalie, maybe slightly above league average, which is where I would have probably pegged him going into the season, then how good are they really? Their defense has been a little leaky. I hope last night you saw a little bit of clarity in the whole, like, let's just move up Lilligren and Sandine and clap our hands and call it a day. And it's not real. They're not ready for that Well, that's a, that's a one-game sample. I don't know if I want to completely... I, I think in most scenarios where we've seen them move up or get responsibility, I haven't liked it. Last night was more of a Lilligren, focus. I've liked Lilligren more than Sandine defensively in those instances. I think they... Didn't negotiate a switch well on the Chris Kreider goal. I think that's an obvious one that you need to have better communication on a play like that. But I want to see it for longer. I want to see what these guys can do over a long, longer stretch because I love Sandine's puck moving. I think Liljegren is the more complete player that I trust against top competition. I'm still not sure how much I trust Sandine below the dots in his own end against the other team's best players, and the coaching staff doesn't either. And that's why his minutes are so sheltered. But... I do want to see a Muzz and Lilligren pair and get a legitimate run because Lilligren Hall, I'm just done with it. I'm sorry, not Lilligren Hall, Muzz and Hall, I'm just done with it. I, I don't see that succeeding long-term anymore. And and to that, I'd say it's fine if you're done with it, but I, then the answer is from the outside for this season. Like, they're trying to win a cup this year, man. Like, that that's what it comes down. They're trying to win a cup this year. They're not... People can talk about winning one round, and yeah, that what that winning the one round will save jobs. That's what winning round one will do. But the the goal is not to win round one and then bow out in round two. And I just I don't see it with either of those guys this year. Now, if they were a team like LA, let's say that's nipping on the heels of a playoff spot and is around there, and if they squeak in and shit division, whatever, whatever, then I then I'd say yeah, play Lilligren and Sandine get them some reps, so on, so forth. We're building something here. The Leafs are, they are beyond that. They are trying to win a Stanley Cup this season. I don't see either of those guys playing every other night, 20 plus minutes a night, and that getting them to the to the Stanley Cup final. I don't, not against th- two of three of Boston, Florida, Tampa, and then possibly Carolina in the Eastern Conference Finals. I think they'd have a field day against those guys. So you're thinking of the top six combinations on Florida, on Tampa Bay, on Boston. You're thinking of the best forwards in hockey, some of the best forwards in hockey, going up against a Lilligren, going up against a Sandine. Do you trust that when you look at it? Do you trust that more against them or more against Muzzin right now? Because frankly, I'd rather see what Sandine Lilligren can do than watch Jake Muzzin struggle to do it again and again. And it makes me feel bad because I've been one of the biggest Jake Muzzin supporters over the last few years. Such a big fan of his 200-foot game, and offensively, he's been super underrated the last few years. But with injuries and age catching up to him, he's been the biggest question mark this year, and he's the reason that you're starting to look at the team and you're thinking, 
And I think they need a second pairing right D to to help lift up Muzzin because usually Muzzin's the guy who can lift up whatever partner you play him with. Nikita Zaitsev in the playoffs against the Bruins, against Brad Marchand, he did really well. That's not something you expect. Do you think do you think Muzzin has completely gone to shit and is beyond repair? I'd like to say no, because I that would make me feel better as a human being. But I'm also biased because what I've actually seen on the ice tells me that he's not handling the rush well, which has historically been one of his strengths. Puck moving has been a disaster this year, but he's always been a rough puck mover on Toronto. So the puck moving doesn't bother me that much, even though I'd like it to be better. It's his defense. It's the way that he's handling speed. It's the way he's handling the rush. And I don't expect that to get significantly better in the next couple of weeks. So... I Where do. does that leave me with my evaluation of Muzzin? I do. I I expect the game to get significantly slower. I expect significantly more obstruction starting to occur. I recall people having this conversation with guys like Chara over the years. Be like, yeah, he's going to get blown by in the playoffs. And then suddenly playoffs come around. And, and Muzzin's a big boy too. Obviously, he's not Chara height. But Muzzin's a big dude. And suddenly the reach and the size and the old man's strength, so to speak, come into play. I I would 100%, if the choices are bet on Muzzin, playoff veteran and Stanley Cup winner, figuring it out a little bit more come playoff time, or really young guy who's never actually done it before, just magically going in there and being amazing or holding his own, I would bet Muzzin for sure for this year. And for what it's worth, I... I- and betting on a guy who you have a long track record has done well against top competition for his entire career. So that's obviously a bunch of evidence to, to suggest that Muzzin still can bounce back. But the argument about more slug and tug in the playoffs and bigger, stronger defensemen have an advantage, I, I feel like that's the type of logic that makes you think Ben Sherratt plays well in the playoffs. And I've looked up some evidence on him lately. Drag like Paul on Twitter showed some stats the other day that made me go, oh, wow, I was off of my evaluation here because watching Ben Sherratt in playoff games, I thought he played well personally just from watching him play. Then I look up the numbers. He, he had the worst scoring chance differential at 5-on-5 five five on the Montreal Canadiens and the worst goal differential at 5-on-5. Five five. When he was on the ice, he was getting beat up. But NHL GMs thought he did great, and they're willing to give up a first-round pick for him this year. Do I think NHL GMs are the authority on how good hockey players are? No. I do not. I think you need to look up evidence on players to see if they're doing well in their minutes. And right now, Jake Muzzin this season isn't doing well in his minutes. Does he have a chance to bounce back? Yes, he does. But, man, I'm not compelled to believe it's going to happen, and I want to be. I'm I'm stretching for any kind of reason I can cling on to to tell me that Jake Muzzin is going to go back to being the Jake Muzzin of the previous five seasons. But I haven't seen anything yet to really get me there, and I want to. Please give me something. I'd love it. Okay, first of all, I wouldn't ever compare Ben Sherratt to Jake Muzzin. I bet you NHL GMs would. I bet you there are a bunch out there who would make that comp, and they're wrong. <laughs> it literally does not matter. So Jake Muzzin is, was a legitimate first-pairing D-man on a Stanley Cup winner and also represented Team Canada at that 2016 World Championship. Like, He's a stud. Like Jay Bowmeister represented Team Canada despite getting Jay, lit up at five on five. I'm not sure if that's a great argument. Jay Bowmeister was really good at one point, though. He was legitimately not his last year on Team Canada. Okay, not his last, but he was a really good player in the league for a long time. He was a legitimate top pairing D man in the NHL. 
I I don't I never looked at Ben Sherrod and went this guy is a legitimate top pairing guy. I've looked at Muzzin and thought that for the past basically decade now. You kind of it's hard to reconcile how long ago 2010 was, you know. Jeez, the golden goal was what 12 years ago now. Yeah, coming up nuts. on it, February's in a month. Yeah, jeez, wild. So I I wouldn't compare those two. I think um, when I say when I say Muzzin will do better when the game starts allowing a little bit more obstruction and that kind of style of play comes comes in to more effect. I look at it more, and again, I'm not fully comparing him to Charles. Charles a first ballot Hall of Famer, in my opinion. I think he's a top five D-man of all time. He probably should have won another Norris. Easily. He was incredible. And, and as a side note, the shit that people used to give Phil Kessel for not producing against Boston because he was literally going down against Chara with like Bozy as his center. And it was his, it was right wing down the left D on Chara. Try getting around him off the rush. It's really hard, especially when the refs aren't calling penalties. And like, and the rest of his lineys all stink. And the shit that he got for it in retrospect is pretty stunning. What do you mean you couldn't go up against probably the best defensive center, arguably the best defensive left winger or two way winger. Although Marion Hosa, I would say is still better. Um, and probably the best, the best left-handed defenseman. Bergeron's defensive impact is still elite, and it's been this way his entire career. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. He's one of the best defensive players of all time. Yeah, and the and we used to just give Phil, and I say we loosely because I don't think I really was Toronto yeah. media at large. Yeah, just gave him so much shit. So, <laughs> anyways, all that to say is I look at Muzzin as more of a. He's probably lost a little bit, but he's smart enough and crafty enough and knows his way around the league and the battles that I think he'll figure it out and at least be respectable. In saying that, I think he's been a bigger problem than people are willing to admit when they give Justin Hole a bunch of shit. I also don't think Justin Hall was that good last year. I don't think he was terrible, but I think Jake Muzzin was the one driving that pairing success. That said, I would never look at that defense and say, you need to get Jake or Justin Hole a better partner. You need to get Jake Muzzin a better partner. <laughs> no one obviously. would say that. No one in their right mind would say that. And even the, a few weeks ago when I was sitting there going, I think my my main need would be a score. I can't watch these guys not score again in the playoffs. Yada, yada, yada. And as much as I still desperately think that they need another forward, it's becoming it's become essentially impossible to ignore the defense at this point. And I think that's fair. I think the big consensus after their last couple games is... They need another defenseman. They need another right-side defenseman. And the big argument over the last couple months is, do you want a top six forward or do you want a top four defenseman? Who are you targeting at the deadline? Can I make a counter-argument here? How many teams in the NHL don't need a top four defenseman? I think every NHL team could improve with a top four defenseman. I think every NHL team could improve with a top six defenseman. That's why Ben Sherratt's going to get a first-round pick. <sighs> well, I think you could do better than Ben Sherratt if you're trying to improve your decor. I agree, but your but to your question of who doesn't need to improve their defense, that's why. Supply and demand. Here are the list of teams who have an expected goal rate over 55%. You're controlling a majority of the quality chances at 5-on-5. Five five. Boston in first, your team. Florida in second. <laughs> Don't ever call Toronto Boston my third. team. Well, you were commenting about how good they were at 5-on-5 five five when I they had are looked good. up the numbers. And you were dead right. You were absolutely right. They're sick, man. You're refreshing these stats pages more often than I am. Jeez, I need to get on your level. Anthony, the stats guy on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. 
So what I was trying to say there is that Boston, Florida, and Toronto are the top three teams when it comes to controlling quality shots. So what are they with league average goaltending? They look like a hell of a good team at 5-on-5 five five to me. Uh, and I know that, that more comes from them being elite offensively and merely decent defensively and not as strong defensively as they were last year. But the way that Austin Matthews is controlling play when he's on the ice at 5-on-5, five five, he's dominating every single shift. No forward in the analytics era, which is since 2007, has ever been in the top five of both offensive impact and defensive impact. He's in the top two of both right now when it comes to controlling quality shots. He's sick, but here's the question. But here's the question. Do you think he'll dummy Barkoff, Point, and Bergeron? I don't know if he'll dummy them, but my argument would be that he is the best five-on-five player in the world right now. And I think his line will get the majority of the shots, scoring chances, and goals, even if they're going up against one of the top lines of the NHL. That would be my argument. My question to that would then be, if they get sawed off and Campbell's back to being an average, a slightly above average, average-ish goalie. That hurts your chances at winning that series. Yeah. And then, and then your defense is the second pairing of whatever the hell it is right now. And you're going to hope that Tavares and Nylander go on a heater. That's what you're going to need. Yeah, who still generally get outshot with Kerfoot there. And then and then you can kind of see how we get into the matchup game all of a sudden. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold on. And I don't want to spend the majority of this podcast talking about a fourth line, but the fourth line's been bad lately, been really bad. And I, I got lit up by Jeff O'Neill a few years ago for talking too much about a fourth line's Corsi 4 percentage and expected goal percentage. But Clifford, I'm, I don't know if he's an NHLer anymore. I, I, I have two. I, I have two things on the on the fourth line. Um, if you'll indulge me for a sec, go for it. We're already talking about it, so let's do it. Clifford's not an everyday NHLer. Clifford is. You need a shot in the arm. He he goes in once a week or once every two weeks, and he knows how to do his job. And it's not like god awful, and he might light someone up. It's been god awful lately, though. That's it's been really bad because he's playing every night, which he's not. That's not him. The second thing I'll say, though, is people talk about jam. People talk about physicality. And you sit, and I've and I've thought, too, at times, okay, like, you'll put Clifford and Simmons together. Hopefully, they'll build off of each other's energy. I saw a game against the Rangers where their fourth line was running around, hitting everything that moved. I didn't see Clifford or Wayne respond worth a shit in that game. Simmons' game has dropped off in the last month or so. And it's so disappointing because literally just saying hit, not saying make a skill play, not saying do anything hard. I'm not, I'm not even sitting here saying control play in the offensive zone and get a good cycle going. Saying literally just hit, like you are on the road. That rink was loud last night. I thought there was a great atmosphere in that arena. I mean, anything compared to the home Leafs games is a great atmosphere right now. But, but you could see their fourth line kind of got the crowd going. It got the team going. And you could just feel it. You could feel the game tilting. And if you're going to have guys like Kyle Clifford and Wayne Simmons on the team, it's not so that they can take good shifts. It's so that they can provide some pushback on this team. I would and also like nothing. good shifts. I would like good shifts I, of course. as well on top of that. Because they haven't of been course. given those at all lately. But it's nothing. And and that's and that's so bothersome. That's so irksome to me. Like you have to know your role in that scenario. I was just waiting to see if, if. And I think Wayne's been great on in the front of the net on the power play. 
I still think there's fully a role for him there. I really like what he's doing on it. I mean, at 5-on-5, up until the last month, he'd been generating lots of quality shots at 5-on-5, and those have fallen off a bit lately. Jason Spezza's overall game looks to have fallen off a little bit lately. You know know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when we had Bruce on, and he went, yeah, like, these guys will be good in the beginning of the season, but once, like, once the actual things start rolling around, they're not going to be good anymore. Like guys who are what, 30 plus, 35 plus? Yeah, like these vets that are big names that are whatever. And, and Spets, I'm a little bit more interested in in the sense that, okay, he's kind of been sewered with his line mates. I, you can't ignore that. It's just the reality. But that was the reality last year too. I, I don't think that I don't think that he can play center full time. And I've, I always get into this argument with people and every off season, I see people project him as the four C and, and this is why I don't think he is a center in the league anymore. I think he's a really good offensive right winger in a depth role, only in a depth role. So then I guess you could move Simmons to left wing, but then he's playing on his off wing. You could have Engvall at center. I mean, to me, and, <laughs> and, and we have to talk about this too. When we talk about the way the Rangers kind of got revved up as the game went on and as the Leafs kind of turtled. And, um, and I don't know if you remember, uh, but when Elliot Friedman was on with us in the pod, he said, there's basically two things that you can't call NHLers. And he said, the first is like, they're faking an injury or something. Like if a guy says he's hurt, he's hurt. And the second thing is don't call them soft. Cardinal sin in professional sports, calling someone soft. And, and Sheldon Keefe called them soft. That's calling out your team pretty emphatically. And now they're gonna now they're gonna go into to play the Islanders, which has been a house of horrors a little bit. And the Islanders are on a run right now. Thanks, Garrett Sparks. Sorry, that's a, that's a that's a deep cut. Yeah, but there you go. There's there's seven two and one in their last ten. They they look they're they're starting to get a little bit of momentum. They're trying to make a run. It's not always who you play, but when you play them. And the Leafs are playing a team that's hot, a team that'll always be fired up to play them because we know why. And I'm very curious how they respond because. Honestly, I was a little surprised that he called. I did think that they played. I was disappointed that they had no pushback again. And we talked about that last week, too. Remember when we were talking about how, like, Vegas caved them in and Colorado caved them in and they had no pushback? And again, it felt like that. Major momentum swings with these teams. Marner mentioned it, too, in his postgame answer. I thought he best summarized the problem, basically. He's saying, like, we let this happen way too often when the other team gets rolling and we do nothing to stop it. Like we, this is getting old. And I don't know if there's any substance to this. I've been, th- and I don't know how you quantify it. I, I don't think you can. But I thought when they, after they played Colorado, I thought it was interesting that Sheldon Keefe mentioned that it was the loudest arena they've played in all year. And I was like, eh, like, why would he point that out, like unprompted? Because in the playoffs, it's going to be loud. And, and the rinks get loud, and the atmospheres change, and the Leafs really struggle to go out in those envi- like hostile environments. And just, e- even if it's just a momentum-killing shift for the other team, you know? Like, it's not even something to get the momentum back for you, but just something that kind of cuts the shit out. You know, when, like, you're playing basketball, and it's like, you just hit, like, a three just to quiet the crowd down and say, okay, shut up this is not the way this is going to go like they got nothing when those happen when that happens sometimes you need a dominant shift from austin matthews i think is what you really need when the other team's rolling coming at you shift after shift and he just says no i'm taking this puck i'm taking it to the offensive zone and we're gonna get three quick scoring chances you need you definitely need something that is gonna have some pushback and it, 
yes, Matthews, of course, is the main guy that you would want to see go out there and just dominate just because he's such a stud. I'm just thinking of the natural way of you're, you're the Leafs right now. The other team just had three or four shifts in a row that are really good. The building's rocking. How do I stop that? And I'm like, okay, I guess Austin Matthews is going to solve this problem. Even, even when, so this is a direct, this is a direct quote. I, I loved this quote from Sheldon Keefe. This was one of the times it, I actually have come to start enjoying some of his post games. He's very candid, which I think is to his detriment, but for our purposes, it's great. Um, I can expand on that after if you want. But here's a direct quote. A play that stands out to me. We were in the neutral zone. We were up 3-1 in the second period. The fourth line was on the ice. We turned it over in the neutral zone instead of getting it in and establishing a forecheck. In turn, their fourth line comes to life. Gets on the forecheck. Wins a puck battle. And scores a huge goal. Just little plays like that where you have one fourth line that goes out and plays with a ton of purpose. Ours didn't have the same. It ended up turning the hockey game. He's not wrong. And and that's this, that's the shit that I think of when I talk about going. And we've seen what happens when that Boston crowd gets going and that team builds off of it. I That Tampa rink can get going. Florida has nothing. We're not even going to touch that one. I just, I'm terrified of their hockey team as a whole. Florida might just be, I don't know, it's playoffs. They start throwing rats on the ice and shit. Who knows? But I'm worried about a Sam Reinhart third line in Florida. That's what I'm worried about. Me me too. But so I look at at the Leafs forwards, and that's also where I think a defenseman could come into play. It might be nice to have another defenseman that can go out there and just calm the game down a little bit. Calm the team down a little bit. Okay. Can we pivot here and talk about what everyone in Toronto is talking about right now? Who are the Leafs going to trade for on defense? Because we brought up a few names before on this podcast, and they basically have to be a right side D. Because are you going to tra- trade for Jacob Chikrin and ship Muzzin out the other way? I don't see that happening. That feels like more of an off-season move if you're going to move on from Jake Muzzin organizationally. I-, I think that would be the time to do it in the summer because who's trading for Jake Muzzin right now? I- I'm not sure if I see it. It makes no sense. I, I don't see it happening. I, I think I th- there's a few things that they're kind of – I think, like I said, we talked about – earlier i think they can feel pretty good about their forward group if they're healthy but i think once we see an injury or two to the group and i thought the third line was pretty good last night but generally speaking i don't think the i don't think the third line is much without kasha to be honest i think once mikhaev kind of comes back to reality do you think a lengthy long rangy mikhaev engval camp combination can that be an annoying third line that you trust out there defensively i i don't think they i don't think they score enough that's fair that's fair, considering their talent level, the goal, the goal scoring. Well, I don't know. Ilya Mikheyev's Jesus now, so. <laughs> that, that's what I know. You, I, as I said last night, I tweeted, you, you cannot stop him. You can only hope to contain but him. But when that, he's not going to keep shooting whatever. What's he shooting right now? What's his shooting percentage? <laughs> I think it's like 26, 26% or something. So, so awesome. it's just, you know, Engvall, Engvall got that breakaway against the Rangers um, in the third. And honestly, I did not even blink. I felt like when I was watching Mikheyev on a two-on-one last year in the playoffs, I was just like, oh, okay, that's it's a shot on net. It's Mikheyev's going to score on dump-ins now. Like he's just. I know he he's but without it, but I think with Kasha there, it's a, it's a deal, it's a game changer. But you can see if without him, I think the forward group is generally lacking, especially. Um, you see what Spezza's paired with on the fourth line. What if you move Kerfoot down? 
does that help give you a bit more goal scoring talent in the bottom six? Because I think and it, who goes who goes up? One of Mikheyev, Kasha. I don't know. Spets late in the game if you're trying to get a goal. If you swap Kasha and Kerfoot for the full game, it, it just you're just robbing Peter to pay Paul. I don't if see you, it that way personally. If you do it in the third period, why wow, you just made your third line worse and your second line a little bit better? But but two line two line teams not sustainable. You need three lines in the playoffs. You need three lines. Kerfoot's biggest strengths this year have been on the penalty kill, and I'd say completing passes off the rush. So you move Kerfoot to the third line now, where he's playing alongside Camp and one of the long rangey guys, whether it's Mikheyev or Engvall. I think he it would be, be Mikheyev, let's be honest. Probably would be. And Engvall in that fourth line would give them more of what they need. Puck transporting, a bit of skill. I can't believe I'm saying that with Engvall, but it's true when you compare him to Clifford and company. I I, I would. It's weird to say. I, I would hope to see Engvall drop down to the fourth line and see if he can just give Spezza a bit more of a legitimate guy to play off of. Engvall, Spezza, and transition moving the puck up the ice as a duo, I like. I actually genuinely yeah. like that. I, I would really like to see... And and we've been really uh, we've praised him quite a bit so far this season, but I would really like to see a lot more from Simmons coming up. Like, like man, you have to see what's happening in in these games where your team is blowing leads and the like the energy is just zapped on the bench and it's basically just like waiting for the car like the car to hit for the car accident. Like that's why he's here. He's here to be that that energy guy, that physical presence and. I don't think he's thrown a hit of note this season. I think he needs an extra night off here and there. I think Spezza needs the same thing. I think they're hesitant to do it with some of their older players. I know there was a big storyline earlier in the year when Wayne Simmons is a healthy Yeah, that was insane. That term drives me insane. That term drives me nuts in hockey because you're resting the player. It's an 82-game regular season. What's the point of playing Wayne Simmons 82 games? How does that benefit you as a hockey team? There's no point. You're wasting his energy in meaningless games, and then come playoff time, he's going to not be as useful. I don't see the benefit in it. I know NHL hockey players, it's important to them to play every single game, and this has been a part of the culture for decades. I think hockey culture needs to change. I think that's been very clear in the last year or two, and this is one aspect of it for me. Uh, yeah, I I wouldn't even be asking these guys. I would just be telling them this is how it's going to be, and uh, you're going to take a seat, and it is what it is. And to be honest, I actually think you have enough from Simmons and even Spezza to some degree to sit them and just say, this isn't even necessary. This is partly load management, but it's also partly you haven't been playing well enough and you need to take a seat. Like it's actually you've it's actually a little bit beyond load management. Yeah, at, because at you're point. not sitting Pierre Engvall right now, right? He's playing too well. It's not like Simmons or Spezza are on heaters and you're going, guys, I'm going to sit you. I know you have six in your last five, but you can take a seat. We're load managing you. It's actually more like you really haven't done much and you look tired. So you can take a seat. That That's the conversation. Can we get back to the defense? Because I think we, we've talked about all the forward lines now. I think that's pretty fresh in everyone's minds. Getting over to defense, Riley Brody, you're not touching, obviously. That's been the Leafs' best pairing. Those That's your shutdown pair now. I know they're your best offensive pairing, but they're also your best defensive pairing right now. You, you like Sandine in sheltered minutes. Sandine dominates sheltered minutes. So Sandine crushing the third pair of minutes alongside whether it's Dermot or Lilligren, depending on where the other players go. I, I don't like I don't like Dermot this year at all. Uh, poor Dermot, man. That was a rough game. It's fresh how bad. It's fresh how bad he's been. Was that his worst game as a NHL player? He hasn't been good Rangers? this season. 
I'm sorry. Don't like point out some number to me. He hasn't. No, it's not an I'm sorry. It's not. It's I just I feel bad for having believed in this guy. I, I'm I'm looking in the mirror now just going. I thought this guy was going to be a top four defenseman. I really genuinely believed that. It just shows how hard it is for def- defensemen to develop in this league. Going from sheltered usage to more difficult usage is something that is difficult to measure in terms of how do you prove a guy can do it versus can't do it. It's very difficult to know. You just kind of have to throw him in there and see if he can do it. Some guys can do it. And that's why a lot of the analytics nerds online, myself included, will say, just try this. Like, we know this old defenseman who's sucking in these minutes is bad, so why don't we try this young guy who we've never put in those minutes? Why don't we see if he can do it for 10 or 20 games? Maybe he can. You try Nate Schmidt and Braden McNabb in that role, they crush it. They did really well. But then you try Travis Dermott in alongside Morgan Riley this year, and it's a disaster. So some guys can do it. Some guys can't do it. I think the aspect of Dermott's game that you just never trust is in his own end defending the cycle. I don't trust him to take away passing lanes to the front of the net. I don't expect him to make the right reads at the right time. It's the same reason he's not on the penalty kill. I don't even trust him to come out of the corner with the puck at this point. And that was an aspect of his game that you always believed in. That was the escapability that made him intriguing as a young player. I think he is... Uh, it's tough. I mean, if he's your seven, is that bad? No. but I think he's one of the better sevens in the NHL, even despite all this negativity. He probably is if he were to go down the list. But at the same time, if someone got hurt on their defense and he had to step in, I wouldn't feel good about it. In a playoff game. But how many NHL teams feel good about their number 7D playing serious minutes in a playoff game? I don't think there are too many out there. Okay, so I think part of the... I think part of that question would then be... So if, if we look at a team... Like, let's compare... Let's say Tampa for a sec. Right? If if they have their 7 go in, at least they can sit there and go... Hedman on one pairing. Sergeyev on the other. McDonough on the other. And right now, we can sit there with the Leafs and go, Riley and Brody look good. You don't trust Sandine and Guy on a third pair? I mean, I probably do, but at the same time... I think you really should. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest you should when you look at how well they're dominating play at 5-on-5. Five five. I, we'll see if he's progressed beyond it. I think Sandine threw up uh, quite a few giveaways and mistakes in the playoffs once things tightened up. I don't know if I love the idea of him and Dermot together in a, in a playoff series but sandine lilligren you would trust because lilligren's been better yeah i don't know i wouldn't necessarily say i trust them but i wouldn't feel as How about sandine hall yeah i think that's the way it'll go and i think they really like hole i i know everyone hates him right now i actually find it kind of sad i think he's good on the pk i think he plays a ton of tough minutes for the team um his confidence is shot at the moment which is, it? it's sad to see. And that's the biggest thing I want to see him improve. Because his puck moving ability, his ability to just skate up into the play, activate as the fourth guy, you haven't seen as much of it this year. And I want to see more of it because when he's doing that, that's when he's being Justin Hall. When he's not activating into the play, and now I'm thinking, okay, well, what are your biggest strengths as a player? If you're not taking advantage of those strengths, I don't know if you're making a big impact on the game. The puck is a literal grenade on his stick right now. So... I, I think him and Sandine could be fine if Sandine just handles the puck duties and, and Hole just kind of cleans up the mess a little bit. And, hey, if that's your third pairing, you're looking pretty good. So the big question now, Jake Muzzin and who? 
Insert guy. Who are you inserting there, Anthony Petrielli? I I don't know yet. I I need to do a little bit more of a deep dive before I confidently throw out a name and say. Can I throw is... out a few names for you and see what you sure, think? Sure, sure. Damon Severson. I don't know why Jersey would trade on. They're not a contending team this year, and they don't project to be next year. And he's an unrestricted free agent at the end of next season. I like I like him. I don't think Jersey will trade him at the deadline this year, but I like him. I think he's good, and I think he would be helpful with Muzzin. And I almost, and I don't want to go galaxy brain here, so you let me know if I am. I'm sure you would anyway. Like, is that the kind of guy where you acquire him and, and you actually, and I like Severson, but I don't know if I would, you're saying that they acquire Severson and Riley Brody is the shutdown pairing and Muzzin is like a second line pairing. Exactly. Yeah. I I'd, I'd put Riley Brody out there against the Bergeron line. And then I'd put Muzzin and Severson in this case against the Taylor Hall line. Is there a world where you look at that and actually flip it and say, and, and just not flip the pairings, but you actually flip Brody and Severson. I don't think you touch Riley Brody right now. I think they've been too successful. I think Morgan Riley has played the best hockey of his life alongside TJ Brody, and I I don't want to mess with it would be my argument. I have a weird take, and you probably won't expect it from me. I'll go Um, for it. I'm ready. This is going to be fun. I I think sometimes we overrate the the chemistry. Interesting. Okay, elaborate, please. Like, I think, and and I thought it was weird, too, and, like, when L.A., got like jeff carter and mike richards and they had kopitar and everyone's like how and they had your boy and everyone's like how are these centers gonna like all like fit together right even when team canada took a bunch of centers everyone's like how are all these centers gonna play together there's like eight natural centers on this team i'm like these guys are disgusting hockey players like they like they'll how figure it Cosby out Cosby and bergeron possibly gonna play on a line yeah together? like they'll figure it out because like they're gross like when you're when you're that good you're on another planet of good like they'll figure it out like they're not fucking stupid like like the hockey game doesn't change that much from i know people think it does it really doesn't so your argument you're saying just put two really good hockey players together and they will figure it out and, and i'm i'm even saying it in the sense that i don't know if um I don't know if the if the way that you want it to go down, if in this case, let's say that they acquired Severson. Again, I don't think they will, but let's just run with that as the example. I wouldn't necessarily sit there and say, I think Riley Brody is the shutdown pairing. I'd actually sit there and say, I still think Muzzin is the guy that you want in a little bit more of those tougher defensive zone slanted minutes. I would still be interested in seeing Muzzin and Brody for a little bit. And and those the Muzzin Brody numbers this year are good for what it's worth. Small sample, that's the only time Muzzin succeeded this year at five on five. I actually really liked them. I thought they were two vets that the game was like it was very calm for them, and they had good head on their shoulders, and they worked off each other well. It, it was just two guys that know the league and know how things work, and they know how to handle top four minutes, and that's what they looked like. They looked very comfortable to me, and I wouldn't necessarily sit there and say oh, it's like it screws up with the pairings. Like you move off like Brody and Riley for like two weeks and like they go to shit after that. Like I just, I don't view, I don't think that that's what would happen. I think even if you tried it and then you're like, "Eh, I don't love it that much. I'm going to go back to Riley and Brody that you would just go back to it and they'd be fine. Like, (laughs) so when it comes to chemistry, that's always something I'm fascinated by is trying to measure this, trying to quantify chemistry because uh, how, how do you do it, right? There, there are a bunch of different ways. I know Ryan Stimson tried to come up with a way back in the day when 
He looked at forward playing styles, uh, playmaker, shooters, balance types, and trying to see what the best combinations had been historically. I looked at that, and back in 2017, maybe it was 2018, I should probably know this considering I did a presentation for it. I think it was 2017. Uh, I did it for a defenseman, and I looked at good puck movers, guys who could defend the rush well, and then if you were good at both, you were two-way. If you were bad at both... I wanted to just call you bad, but I called you dependent. I called you dependent. Yeah. <laughs> so there was two way, <laughs> there was dependent, there was uh, puck movers, and then there were defensive defensemen. Or you could go offensive defenseman, defensive defenseman, two way dependent. And I looked historically over the last couple of years which pairings had done the best together, which pairings had done the worst together. Shockingly, the pairings that had a bunch of dependent players on them, those pairings didn't do very well. And the pairings that had a bunch of two way players, they did really well. We expected that to be the case, so I wasn't really interested in that. I wanted to know what happens when you put two puck movers together who aren't that good at defending the rush, or what happens when you put two good rush defenders out there who aren't good at moving the puck. What the study showed in the long run is that when you had puck movers on a pairing, historically they made the pairings better than guys who were good at defending the rush. So puck moving was more valuable than puck stopping. I found that interesting. The only exception was when you played two puck movers together, they got lit up in goals against. And this is over a large sample. So even though the course he was good. Yeah, I could see that. And that makes sense to me. You play a Morgan Riley and let's say Tyson Berry together. <laughs> and that's a great example because we've seen it. <laughs> when they're both below the goal lines in the offensive zone, it's like, yeah, you have the puck and you're trying to create, but then you just gave up a two-on-one and a goal against. So this is where styles come into play. And I, th- I think styles I think styles are important, but I think I think if you can sit there and look and say – I see how these guys can fit together. And, and so it was like when, even when we saw Marner and Thornton together, I was like, this is brutal. These guys are going to like pat overpass by like six. <laughs> and there were times where they would get in the slot and they would pass out of it. I was going, this is embarrassing. Especially on the power play, right? The lack of shot threats yeah. and Thornton in the middle of a power play never made any sense. And the fact that they did it for 82 games and then seven in the playoffs, there were important playoff games where yeah. Thornton was on PP one in the bumper. So, so all that to say is I, I, I don't want to say chemistry doesn't matter. I do think it matters. I do think there's something to be said about learning how to play off a guy, and, and that takes time, and you do need to develop that. But I, I think some of it's a little bit overblown. I think if you acquire guys who are natural fits to play together or you can conceive or, or work with them on how they would play together and, and utilize their skill sets to do so, I think it comes together a lot faster for people than – than others are willing to to admit at times. Like, it's like if the Leafs acquired Thomas Hurdle, do you think you'd have to sit there and be like, "Oh man, like him and Matthews need to like figure it out for like a month"? To like, no, I think they would instantly be sick because they're both sick. And I think that's a very fair way of looking at it. And I think when uh, super teams are put together for big tournaments, whether it's the World Juniors, the Olympics, you overthink it and you end up not picking the best players. And there are guys that are left off these rosters, and you're thinking. Why is this guy who's over a point per game in the OHL not on this team, but this third line checkers there to win faceoffs and kill penalties? Like, no, just put the best players on the team. That's the way that you maximize your win percentage, and you still see it. And- so, so that's so that's interesting too, because at at that level, I if it's like Olympics kind of thing, I get it. But for like NHL level, I do think there's something to be said about not like not acquiring a guy and asking him to do things that he can't do like that that was probably the biggest issue with the Tyson Berry acquisition right because it was like oh you're gonna play with Muzzin to do what go up against good players fuck no 
or and like also you're not going to play top power play because we have Morgan Riley. All right, I have a I, I have a a guy to bring up now. John Klingberg is available, and I don't want the Leafs. I don't want the Leafs to trade for him, and I think John Klingberg is a unbelievably like talented offensive defenseman with the puck on his stick, walking the blue line. There aren't yeah, too, he's fine. There aren't too many players in the world who walk the line better than John Klingberg. For for a while, it was him and Brent Burns. Like those were the two guys in the league. And there's a famous clip you can find of John Klingberg breaking a guy's ankles with with fake shots, and then finally getting a puck through. And I don't know if it got tipped and went in, or if the puck went in itself. But he's so good at that. He would be buried here. He would be Tyson buried. I don't mean buried as in like buried, like B U R. I he he'd be he'd be Tyson buried here. I am fairly confident on that. And that's, I wanted to bring him up because he's someone who's available and he's probably the highest profile name who's available other than Jacob Chikrin. And again, I don't think he makes sense because he's on the left side and you're not going to move Muzzin down to the third pair. I mean, maybe you could do that, trade for Jacob Chikrin and move Muzzin down to the third pair. I don't, I don't think so. How does it fit in the cap? Uh, th- this is where uh, you make your bones if you're the capologist. But John Klingberg for fun. Let's say you put him on a pair of Jake Muzzin and he plays PP2. Does that work for you? No, that's not, Why you're, not? you're going to pay a premium for, okay. First of all, in the playoffs, the, like power play two is not real. Power play two <laughs> is like 25 seconds. PP two is a, a social construct is what you're saying. Yeah. You're not taking off. You're not like, Oh, Matthew's like a minute's up. Get the fuck off. He'll look at you and be like, I shook my head. I know you can't see that because you're listening. Matthews would just look at the bench and be like, I'm going to stay out here. Like there's no power play two. Chips are down. You need a goal. Who are the five Leafs on the ice? You can already picture them. We already know who the five are. That so yeah. the five you're paying after next year when Riley's contract kicks in, the guys who are making seven million dollars or more. Yeah, those are the guys who are on the ice. And it, and I like Sandine as a secondary power play option. So it's not even like even in some world where you could conceive like oh well like just in case Riley goes to shit that like on the power play and like you have Klingberg as your backup like no it doesn't work that way one and two Sandine is more than serviceable in that role if it if there's some crazy ass world where it came to that but I don't even think that would happen I think you would just you basically have made your bed with Riley as the guy and I think that's how it's gonna be like I don't and I don't think Klingberg is um is good enough defensively five on five to just say yeah, like we're going to get you and you're going to be a good right-handed defenseman, puck-moving, five-on-five guy primarily. I don't think he's good enough for that. If you look at his numbers over the last couple of years, they've fallen off of a cliff from where they were in his prime. John Klingberg in his prime was one of the best defensemen yeah, in the NHL. He was a stud. And not just in terms of point production, but in terms of five-on-five tilting the ice, you were getting lots of shots in the offensive zone, lots of zone time, lots of possession because of the things he could do with the puck on his stick. Now, he's not making as many of those magical plays. I know he's not getting as much power play time because Miro Heiskanen's awesome. I don't think he's fallen this far, but it's almost Oliver ekman Larsony to me at this point, where he's a little bit more name than substance, and there's still some okay things about his game, but ultimately, at the end of the day, like it's just not good enough. I think there's an argument that ekman Larson's the better 5-on-5 five five defenseman than John Klingberg today. I, I think I would make that argument. And that's fair. I wouldn't fight you on that. Ultimately, I don't think either one of them are like, Really, I think they're service like they're solid top four ish defensemen, but like I neither one gets my heart beating. <laughs> I lean more. I'm not even, I don't want to criticize John Klingberg too harsh here, but I think he's a number four defenseman, if that at five on five. I think on the power play special, I think you get an offensive zone start with the puck on a stick, you're down a goal. 
I want John Klingberg out there. But throughout the course of a 60-minute game that's played at both ends of the rink, I don't trust John Klingberg very much. And that makes me sad because I love believing in talented defensemen who can do wonderful things with the puck on their stick. But I think the cons outweigh the pros right now with his game. It wasn't that way five years ago, but it is now, and it has been for the last year or two. It's sad. I, I hate watching magical puck movers decline into their late 20s, but that's what's happened with Klingberg. Look, this is why rules matter, all right? And I know people uh, like roll their eyes at it and, and whatnot, which is whatever. But like, if you need a power play one quarterback, then you should be all in on, on John Klingberg. Sounds like the Carolina Hurricanes are interested, so that could be intriguing. Which is interesting, too, because um, I know off-ice stuff aside, Tony D'Angelo's been like a point per game player so far this year. Like he's Yeah, you'd think that the most woke organization in, in the NHL signing Tony D'Angelo just oof. D'Angelo D'Angelo actually leads their entire team in power play time on ice per game. So I'm wondering if they're looking at moving on from him potentially. Yeah, or they just don't trust him to like not screw it up. In which case I could kind of <laughs> take that argument because they've they've made no commitment to D'Angelo, right? Like so the the point on that being is, unless you need a power play one quarterback, you should not be in the market for John Klingberg, no matter who you are. I got another name for you, by the way. Yep. Artem Zub. He's interesting. Unrestricted free agent at the end of next year. Ottawa Senators are not a contender this year. I doubt they'll be a contender next year, but they're delusional enough to think that they're in the playoff hunt next year because their owner is Eugene Melnick who also probably doesn't want to help the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, the there's no chance that they trade him to Toronto. Let's just move on from that one. I think Connor Murphy's interesting. I find Artem Zub way more interesting just because he's been an analytics darling the last two years, but you're saying move on from it because Ottawa won't trade him to Toronto? I don't know. They, they traded for Dion Phaneuf. I don't think they'll trade him, and I don't think they'll trade him to Toronto. Do you think they'll be able to afford to re-sign him? Because I don't think they'll be able to do that either, so I think trading him could make some sense. I'd have to. I I would want to watch Zub a little bit more closely. I haven't watched a ton of Ottawa this year, uh, for obvious reasons. They stink. Um, He's been their best five on five defenseman. I mean, other than Thomas Shabbat, who's obviously great. But in terms of impact in the game at five on five, tilting the ice, Zub's been consistently great for that team. Yeah, and I've liked him when I've seen him in previous seasons. But also, honestly, I'll I'll just say it straight up. Like, not one of the bigger red flags for me is analytics darling on a shit team. That's just. That's I need to like I need to watch him a little bit more, whereas and Connor Murphy, who is also on a shit team, and I've actually watched a decent amount of Chicago this year for God knows why. I actually I I think he could be a, a pretty good fit on on the Leafs. I'm not as big of a fan of Connor Murphy. What do you like about Connor Murphy? I think he's I think he's good defensively. I think he would I think he would kind of settle things down a little bit more. I don't think he would make the big mistakes the way that we're seeing whole like fumble a puck for like literally no reason and like trip over his own ankles or Lilligren just like chilling watching a guy in front of the net score or Sandine just throwing one up the middle I think I think he'll I think he's uh less risky than their other options so do I think he's like a huge needle mover not necessarily but do I think he's less likely to make the big mistakes that we're we're consistently seeing yes just looked up Connor Murphy's uh, heat map at HockeyViz.com. When he's on the ice, he doesn't give up very many chances against in the defensive zone, despite being on the Chicago goddamn Blackhawks. Yeah, he, so, he is good defensively. That, that's why I like that's, him. 
Point and, Anthony. Jeez. And see, the interesting thing is like a few guys you've mentioned, like Zub or uh, I mentioned Murphy or Scott Mayfield in our last episode. Like those are the kinds of guys where I would almost look and say, I don't think any of them are necessarily good puck movers. And Muzzin's been a disaster with the puck this season. And that would be more to my point of, do you flip in that scenario? Do you flip Brody with Muzzin and then say, I'm going to put a Murphy with Bro- with Riley, a Zub with Riley, a Mayfield with Riley? Trust that person to be the last man back, defend the rush, let Riley do his Riley things, and that way Brody's the stabilizing presence on Muzzin's uh, pairing. Okay. Don't hate it. I don't hate the idea. I actually, I'm intrigued by it. I, I don't know if, if let's say, and I love Scott Mayfield, to be clear, but I don't know if him and Muzzin can move the puck out. <laughs> I think they can chip the puck off the glass. What's a Muzzin-Mayfield pairing look like? Right? Like, I, I don't know what the puck movement will what be like. What if they're just constantly killing guys in the neutral zone? You can't get by them. They're a wall. I'd love it. Sign me up. <laughs> Let me know when a Leaf throws a hit. I, I, I don't know when the last time we've seen it. Jake Muzzin closes guys out as much as I get frustrated with him. He's one of the guys. Honestly, off the top of my head, like I'm trying to think of the last leaf to throw a hit of substance. The fact that I have to think this hard about it is proving your point, so I shouldn't even come up with it anymore at this point. Wayne Simmons tries some nights. But he really doesn't. And honestly, there was a point against the Rangers where Truba laid out Riley, and Keith called on the fourth line pretty shortly after that. And they did nothing. And he was hoping for a response by doing that. I'm like, dude, like your your number one big ticket D-man just got leveled. It was a clean hit. It was yeah, a great it was hit. great hit. Clean hit. But he got leveled. The rink went wild. I'm sure the bench went wild. And the fourth line gets a tap on the shoulder very shortly after. Why do you guys... Let's put our heads together and think about this. Why do you think you're on the ice right now? Kyle Clifford... Took off his helmet, went no bucket and warm up, thought, hmm, why am I doing this? Yeah. Why am I here? Like, Existentially. <laughs> like, oh, like our big guy, one of our top players just got laid out with a clean hit. And now I'm on the ice and I'm on the fourth line and I'm not a goal scorer. Why am I here? Like just a little bit of jam. So I, I don't know. I don't know how you fix that. I, I don't think that you can. I think it kind of is what it is, but I think they need to do. I think they need to do something where these games seem to be just completely teetering to against them and they got no response whatsoever all right i've got one more question for you here but first i want to know how many more games are left in the season for the toronto maple Leafs. uh what is it like 42 believe they played 37 i'm looking at their top games played guys they're all at 37 which 45 games left in the year how many of those games does petter morazic play i mean if if he stays healthy he should play 20 that's that was gonna be my point. I think they need to split these starts. I know Petter Morazic's been getting the second half of back to backs. That's not enough. Jack Campbell looks a bit tired right now. I think we talked about this earlier in the podcast. We didn't talk about fatigue. And I think that's a factor in his performance. Everyone gives Morazic shit and I've just kind of viewed the season as just unfortunate for him. Do you regret the Morazic signing? Has Morazic been a disappointment as a leaf? And he's played four games. Uh, what do you what do you It's too expect? early to say they de- they definitely need him. To be good. And I, I'm i still of the mind that I think he's going to be a lot more important than people are willing to admit. I think there's basically two things. When I talk about like how good I generally think the forwards are, even though I do think they need another guy, I, th- I think Dubas and co. can feel pretty okay about them. Right? Like if, the, if, if, they have, if they have a healthy four lines and their power play is rolling, they're going to be a tough out. 
for and I don't give a shit who they play. That's a tough out. If the power play if you're an op if you're an opponent coming into a series against the Toronto Maple Leafs, do you see them as a tough out? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I talk myself into not seeing them as a tough out. But I've made arguments in this podcast about how many indicators there are that this team's awesome at five on five. I think there's two I think there's two things that the the management group is basically praying to God on, which is even with a Campbell regression, that he's still one of the best goalies in the league. And I just don't know how likely that is. And I don't. And I, if he's not... Is he top 10? Is if, he top 10, top 15, top 20? I think he's top 15. I, top 10, I think it gets interesting if you really start to like look at it. And if you try to predict goaltender performance, which anyone who's tried to do it knows is damn near impossible... If we're trying to predict the 10 best goaltenders of the NHL from this point in the season moving forward, who are you betting on? Which names come to the top of your mind? Vasilevsky, obviously. He's incredible. Vasilevsky comes to mind for you. Okay, so we're just going yeah. pure ability. Yeah. Uh, Shesterkin, I think, considering what he's done so far, yeah. would be a fair one. Uh, UC Saros has been amazing. <laughs> haven't been, brought up his name yet. He's been yeah, fantastic. He, he's been a stud. He's bas- He's making Nashville relevant again. Connor Hellebuck, I always believe in him based on his last couple seasons. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I was, I, you know, I really want to say John Gibson, but he hasn't, I don't know, he hasn't, uh, I think he's been kind of getting, I think it's been under the radar that he hasn't been good enough because that team has stunk, and I think everyone's just kind of put their hands up. And been He like, was so good when they were bad. And now yeah. that they're actually pretty decent, he isn't as good anymore. I know. And I've been actually disappointed watching it. Um, the weird one is the weird one for me that I've been thinking is is Tuka Rask. Like, do I think he's gonna end up being good? <laughs> I don't know how you get him in these conversations. Man. I but we're talking about goalies, but like if if I would I still believe in him? I think I would. So I guess the the, the larger point I'm making here Mark's, is how many Markstrom is a stud. Markstrom is I think a legitimate I, stud. I, I don't know how much I'd trust Markstrom. Ah, then again, I he would. had a couple good years in Vancouver, and now he's having a big year in Calgary. I would trust Markstrom for sure. I, th- I think he's been really good, and I think he'll continue to be really good. I definitely wouldn't trust Mike Smith or Koskinen. Demko's an interesting one. I wouldn't necessarily trust him, but I do think he's going to be a really good goalie. Bobrovsky, Frederick Anderson, where are you on those two? Oh, I know where you're on Bobrovsky. I know where you're on Bobrovsky, but he's he's third in the NHL and goal saved above expected this year. He, I mean, he's been really good. Like, like you could conceivably see it where the Leafs have the fourth best goalie in their division in the playoff come playoff time. Like, that's absurd given what Boston's doing right now. No, I'm saying you're wrong. Is what I'm saying. Rask has played like two games. Yeah, that that you're saying Rask has a long track record of being awesome. I'm saying he's been out of the league for a bit. Including as recently as the last time he was in the league. Okay. Which wasn't that long well, ago. Jack Campbell's been posting a 927 save percentage in 29 games this year. Small sample, goalies, <laughs> randomness. I know. He's three games away from playing the most that he's ever played, basically in like pro hockey, pretty much. Definitely in the NHL. I mean... I don't know what's going to happen to the guy when he hits the 40-game mark, the 50-game mark. And that's why I think the next stretch of Petr Mrazic is so important because I think you need Campbell to play no more than two games a week. I think if Campbell's play, playing three games in a week, something's gone drastically wrong. So that's the first thing that I said that they're praying to God on. I, it is what it is. Like you, you, These are your two goalies, and you're going to run with them, and you're going to pray to God. Right? There's no massive track record for either. 
For Campbell, it's games played. For Morazic's inability to stay healthy. It is what it is. And the second one is that Muzzin figures it out. That would be huge. That would be in- They're not they're not moving him. They're not moving him at the deadline. I'm so, like he's going to be on the team the rest of the season. I don't know what'll happen in the off season, but he's going to be on the team the rest of the season. Rest assured. Did you see the link that said that the Leafs wouldn't be opposed to moving out salary cap to make a, a deadline acquisition? What's this what's the salary going out in that situation? To me, that's Richie. To me, they should be looking to sell high on Kerfoot. By the way, when we were going through the lines and Richie's name didn't even come up. <laughs> yeah, when we were talking about hitting and Richie's name didn't come up, Richie probably threw the last hit of note. I forget who he crunched Kyle against Clifford's Carolina. name before I brought up Nick Richie's name when I was thinking of forwards who could make an impact. This is crazy. I, I just, <laughs> I can't handle the empty look in his eyes. That's a, that's a bias in player evaluation, man. You did it with Jake Gardner, it 100% says. <laughs> Uh, no, I no, I'm do saying we do it as human beings when we see someone's face uh, look weird after something. No, when I see him look like that and then I see him play like that, I just can't possibly. For Jake Gardner, I think it's after a bad goal against where you pan the camera to him on the bench and he's just staring off into space. I didn't mind that the Gardner look didn't bother me as I much because I, I actually thought Gardner was quite good at for certain stints Gardner's prime man you look at his shot differential scoring chance differential goal differential at five on five man one of the best second pairing defensemen in hockey he was good and i feel bad that he got hurt right before he should have cashed in at free agency even though he did get a pretty good sized deal and it was funny in retrospect how everyone panned it and celebrated it and it was the dumbest thing ever at the time and then it turned out to be just a dumb deal yeah injuries are a factor when you're evaluating a player and like, you're evaluating a contract and like the guy's like 30 and had a bad back and it's like let's give him a four-year 16 million dollar deal everyone's like sick analytics guy like use your brain here i'd say eric tolsky's done a really good job building that team that was a mistake that was not one of his better moves but all in all i think the pros have outweighed the cons in terms of uh, the decisions he's been making there so those are the two things they're they're praying to god muzzin figures it out He's not going anywhere, and I don't think there's a world where they relegate him to the third pairing. So I I think it's partly sink or swim on Muzzin's end, and the goaltending is what it is. Uh, I don't want to sound too down on it. I think they're very likely... I think the Leafs are very likely to have above-average goaltending on the whole. My question then, as I've said repeatedly, then turns back to the team itself to say, is above-average goaltending good enough for this team in the playoffs because I thought that they generally got above average goaltending in the playoffs against the Habs. I didn't think that was the problem. I know everyone's going to talk about the Brendan Gallagher goal in game seven. No one blames Jack Campbell for the Leafs losing that series other than Jack Campbell. Do you know how many times I hear that? Do you know how many times I hear that Gallagher goal brought up? I'm sure people are going to respond to this podcast link with like, yeah, but he was shit in game seven. He didn't make the save on like a wrist shot from the top of the circle. Look at the shooting percentages. Look at their star players' production. It, it, Marner and Matthews didn't score in those last couple games, and they needed to. I agree. But ultimately, my question then turns to the team. Is the team good enough in this elite division to get through it with above average but not elite goaltending? And I think that really comes down to the end of the day. We talk about this all the time. What's going to dictate the Leafs' fortunes in the playoffs? It's going to be the performances of their star players and if they can produce. Their expected goals might be super high, but do they get the actual goals? <laughs> do the shooting percentage come along? And I think Austin Matthews, Austin Matthews is in his prime right now, and 
should be in serious heart consideration. I do wonder what the lowest ranked heart uh, winners have been in, in previous seasons. I know Taylor Hall won the heart. What did he finish in scoring that year? Fourth when he won the heart? Because I'm trying to make the case for Matthews in the heart discussion, but he's not even top five. I think he's barely top ten in points. So this is where point production at some point is going to matter here. And I know Matthews isn't in McDavid. He's but he's going to be right up there in goals. So I think... I think that should trump it a little bit. When was the last time a guy was in the Rocket Richard conversation and the Selkie conversation? Can you think of it? And that's how special Austin Matthews is. And the fact that you can't come up with anything right now is why I still believe in this team. Because when Austin Matthews is on the ice at 5-5, five and five, they're a juggernaut. When he's off the ice, it's either the Tavares-Nylander line, which with Kerfoot, I'm, I'm concerned about, man. I'm way more concerned Datsuk? than the average person. Datsuk? Datsuk? Did, did he get maybe the- that year that maybe that year that Sid had like forty six or something because he was like I'm gonna score so everyone stops fucking saying that I can't score. That's a fair one. Uh, how many goals did Doug Gilmore have in ninety three? I'm going way back, but <laughs> see, I was trying to think back too, but I was thinking more like Jerome Ginla, Ilya Kovalchuk, Rick Nash. Not that I thought that they were guys that were competing for a Selkie, but that that era of goal scorers. Ryan Kessler had forty goals one year. Yeah, and he, he won yeah, the Selkie. Yeah, he's probably that year. the closest and. I, I loved Kessler, but I think Matthews is a way better player than Kessler, obviously. And that's kind of my point is, so like, I, you believe in Matthews, you want to believe in that Tavares-Nylander line, I'm going to need to see more before I believe in Kerfoot on that line, even though the point production's been there. And then the third line is, in your opinion, going to need Kasha. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you there. I'm trying to talk myself into Kasha in the top six, because I like the idea of playing him there, but then your third line all of a sudden isn't producing. So I, I, I'm I hearing your arguments. I guess that's a low-key third thing they're going to pray to God on, that Kasha can stay healthy in the playoffs, playing every other night. Can they bubble wrap him between now and then? I know. I, he, he's a worry. And I think at some point, and I might do this on Monday, so I apologize in advance for stealing this, but like, I think we need to do a little bit more of a deep dive on the second line because if the first line is sawed off, which is essentially what the Habs did, and pretty much Columbus as well. If the first line gets sawed off, all things being equal, like the second line has to be sick. If I'm Dubis, I'm probably arguing that Kerfoot's ability to complete passes off the rush helps that line convert at a rate that's higher than their shot differential right now, the, you know, the below 50% Corsi. But as someone who's paid attention to this stuff for a long time, you can't be getting outshot at 5-on-5 five five with Tavares and Nylander on the ice, for Christ's sake. Ker- Kerfoot's on a heater and for the season, not right this second. And honestly, when I look back at this little like slump of games, I think he's had one good period, which was the first period against Colorado. And I don't think he's done anything of note since. And that's Alex Kerfoot that I know. So high. So high on Alex Kerfoot. You had the chance to in the offseason and you didn't. <laughs> it is on an absolute platter. I like when you're talking about moving out cap room. I'm like, hey, he's got three and a half million dollars that you could probably spend more efficiently. But <laughs> like, like Matthews is amazing, like you said. But I, but whoever they play is also going to have an amazing top line and a really, really amazing. Like you're either going to get Hedman, McAvoy, or Uyghur and Ekblad. Like. Like you can saw off the top line. Hedman Hedman McAvoy? 
I'm not saying as a like I'm saying like either you're gonna play Boston and you're gonna get McAvoy. Oh, the headman yeah. pairing, the or McAvoy Weger. pairing. Yeah, I got confused yeah. there. My mistake. Okay, that, my that's bad. what I meant. Yeah, the top pairings are filthy in the division. So you can conceive a world where you saw off the Leafs' top line, and then it and then the pressure is on the Tavares Nylander line. And when, even when we think back to the Hab series, the first the first four games where they won three, Nylander and Kerfoot were on a heater. And then it started to dry up a little bit, and then they lost three straight. Nylander's been on a sustainable heater all season, so I think he's gonna have a much bigger say in the Leafs out in the Leafs' fortunes this postseason than he in last season. I know he had a great playoffs, but I just mean in his ability to overall control the game, minutes, puck touches, uh, PP one. He's there. He wasn't last year. The fact like, that's absurd that he wasn't, but. He's having a point per game season where he's dominating play at five on five when he plays without Kerfoot. Because when he's playing with the Kerfoot at five on five, they're getting outshot. I can't believe that's a thing. Um, we should probably get out of here. We're about an hour 15 in, but there are things to pay attention to moving forward. Keep an eye on that Kerfoot line because we know the Matthews line is sick and they're going to be sick. Keep an eye on that Kerfoot line. Keep an eye on what the camp line is doing when Kasha isn't there. Because offensively, I'm with you, Anthony. I think it's going to be a bit concerning. You trust them defensively, but are there enough goals there? Is the fourth going to show up at some point? Maybe? And watch every single one of Jake Muzzin's shifts as closely as you can. Because right now, I think he's the most important leaf in terms of his play is going to dictate their fortunes moving forward. If he sucks the rest of the way... I don't see the Leafs getting very far in the playoffs. If he can turn his game around, all of a sudden we're looking at a true contender here. Go Leafs, go. Here we go. On to next week. Take care, everyone. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running and we're down by three. Look inside yourself, what do you see? The pain is in your mind, no, nothing stops me. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running and we're down by three. Look inside yourself, I know what I see Do you have the guts to 